yeah, I, I was like you. I was a student here at Ball State, studied religious studies, met my wife Sarah here. She was an elementary education major. And after we graduated in 2010, uh, we got married and joined staff. I believe we have a picture of her up behind me right now. So uh, this is, this is uh, her. She's so much fun. Like, that's just us dancing at a wedding. She's so great. I don't deserve her and really enjoy time with her. Um, I know, that's really sweet, but it's, it, I'm not just trying, I'm not trying to, to manipulate your emotions here. I, I do mean that. But I'd love to let you in on our relationship a little bit. Sarah and I enjoy free time in radically different ways. I really enjoy just sitting in my living room, listening to a record, or going out playing sports with my friends, or playing video games. And Sarah's ideal night involves watching makeup tutorials on YouTube <laughs> for hours, or decorating our house, or reading a good fiction book. But one of the things that we do both really enjoy doing together is watching a really good television show or watching a great movie that communicates a compelling story. And so one of our favorite TV shows is the BBC series Sherlock. Love this show, right? It's so good, it's incredible. I will never forget the night that my friends Ryan and Alyssa introduced me to this show. After one episode, Sarah and I were hooked. And that is why I always number my pages for my talks. If you're ever giving a talk, write down the numbers of the pages. So there's something special and refreshing about Sherlock that continues to hold my attention still. The main protagonists in the show are Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, and they're simultaneously entertaining, flawed, and clever. And on the other end of the spectrum, I can't imagine a more convincing or maniacal portrayal of Moriarty, who's played by Andrew Scott. Sherlock mixes these incredibly dynamic characters with backstory, foreshadowing, character development, and epic plot twists. And that's why I think so many of you guys are cheering about it. It's so fun to watch with these elements. And so whether you've seen Sherlock or not, you've seen and heard stories that are compelling to you. Because when certain elements are included in story, they captivate us and they draw us into the story. I don't know how many times I've walked into my living room and found my wife crying because she's watching an episode of Parenthood. She's just drawn into this show so much. Good stories speak to us because we often experience many of the same situations, pains, problems, fears, joys, and victories that our favorite characters are experiencing. Throughout the course of the night, we're going to continue to stick with the theme of story. So we're continuing our series in Mark and looking at another realm in which Jesus Christ has authority. Before we launch into the passage, I want to remind you of some really helpful groundwork that's been laid out for us already. If you weren't here for the start of our series, my good friend and coworker, Carrie Miller, explained to us in the first portion of his talk why it's incredibly reasonable that we can trust that this is actually God's word to us. And so if you want, you can go to our website, ballstatecrew.com, and listen to Carrie's talk. You can actually listen to any of our speakers' talks as they're being recorded uh, and, and uploaded to our, our website. But just in quick summation, one of Carrie's best points was that uh, there's an incredible amount of literary, historical, archaeological, and scientific 
evidence that the Bible is, in fact, God's word to us. This means that as we learn about our passage tonight, as we read it, as we spend time in the Bible, we should label it under the category of nonfiction. Our passage actually took place 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And the characters were people just like you, just like me, and the events that unfolded in our story actually happened. Before we hear this amazing story, let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would soften and open our hearts tonight so that we would hear and understand and respond to your beautiful gospel. I pray that you would receive all glory. Amen. Okay, our passage tonight is Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. I also have the verses uh, on the screen for us as well. So we're going to look at, we're going to break this down into three sections. Uh, and the first section is going to be verses 21 through 24 of Mark chapter 5. 21 says this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So our story begins with Jesus returning to Galilee after demonstrating his authority over nature when he calms a violent storm. He also demonstrates his authority over a demon-possessed man, and he restores him to his right mind. And so immediately when Jesus arrives to the land, we see a man run to him, fall down, and beg him to come heal his little girl who's dying. We actually learn quite a bit, just for two verses worth, about this man. First, it's really significant that he is mentioned by name. Uh, in the gospel accounts, a lot of characters go unnamed. So when Mark goes out of his way to give him a name, you can know that it's significant. We also learn that he works as one of the rulers of the synagogue, which is the temple where Jews worshipped. All of these factors demonstrate that Jairus is a man of importance. He's known, he has a prestigious job, and he has resources at his disposal. The way in which Jairus comes and approaches Jesus is also noteworthy. He comes directly to Jesus, but then he falls to the ground and genuinely begs him for help. He has the boldness to approach Jesus, but he also has the humility to show respect to the man whom he's begging to save the life of his little girl. So we learned two other really important facts about Jairus later on here uh, in Mark and then also from Luke's account of this story. First, this girl was 12 years old, so she's really young. Second, that she's his only daughter. So imagine for a moment that you lived back in biblical times and you were the parent of a precious little girl who just celebrated her 12th birthday. You've seen her grow up before your eyes you love her, and you would do anything to keep her safe. One day she walks up to you complaining that she doesn't feel well. And throughout the rest of the day, her condition worsens. 
Panic starts to set in as her symptoms continue to grow worse and worse, and you fear that she might not live through the night. In desperation, you tear out of your house because you've heard of this miracle worker who can heal people. And so as you're running around town asking your friends if they've seen Jesus, you see this crowd start to collect by the sea. You run to the crowd, praying that it's forming around the one that you hope to meet. And to your delight and relief, you see the face of Jesus. You tell him about your precious little girl and her deteriorating condition. And he chooses to come with you and help you. As you start to move through the crowd with Jesus behind you, you look back. And he's stopped. And he's talking to a woman. And you think to yourself, Jesus, there's no time. My little girl is dying. What are you doing? You're wasting your time with this woman. But there's an abrupt pause at one of the apexes of our story as a new character is introduced. Picking up in verse 25, our passage says this. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she had been freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, the disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This woman could hardly be more different than Jairus. Her name isn't mentioned. Mark only refers to her as a woman or the woman throughout the rest of the story. We also see that she's the one suffering from this physical ailment. She'd spent every penny that she had on medical help but continued to grow worse. Unfortunately, being chronically sick and having absolutely no money weren't her only problems. Her condition would have made her unclean based on God's law. One who was unclean in biblical times would have to announce to others that they were unclean while also remaining at a distance from other people, even from their close friends and family. If someone touched you or if you touched someone else, they would become unclean as well and have to go through a multiple-day process of becoming clean again. This woman had faced 12 years of marginalization. Notice that she approaches Jesus not from in front of him, but from behind. This woman felt shame and had been ostracized for 12 years, and her approach of Jesus shows it. Again, let's try to imagine what it might have been like to endure a disease for 12 years that had bankrupted you and only continued to grow worse. One day you wake up and you notice that you're bleeding, and it continues all week, 
and you need to seek medical condition. Yet the same illness that you need help for simultaneously causes hardships as your family tries to help you and interact with you, and it causes hardships as you go and seek the physicians out. One month goes by, and then two months, and then three months, and you still have no answers, and you're growing weaker and weaker and more anemic because you continue to lose blood. You can't socialize or go out into town without shamefully drawing attention to yourself and the fact that you're unclean so that others wouldn't be made unclean as well. The longest year of your life passes and there's still no hope of healing and your finances are dwindling rapidly. Two years and then three and then four. And you just start to accept that this must be your lot in life your friends that you grew up with are now getting married and having children, and both of these things seem like unimaginable dreams to you, but they're still things that you desire. You've now lived with this illness for over a decade, and you've lost all hope of ever being healed. But then your parents tell you about this man named Jesus who's healed many others who are sick just with a simple phrase or a single touch. You leave your home to go find Jesus and you see the same large crowd and you think to yourself, only Jesus could draw a crowd like this. It must be him. As you start to make your way through the crowd, you decide not to declare that you're unclean because you're fearful that Jesus, like the countless others that you have told, will back away and step away from you because of your condition. You're moving closer and closer, even though Jesus is following behind this frantic man. Finally, you're in arm's reach away, and you reach out and touch his clothes, and you can feel that you're instantly healed. I can't imagine the supreme joy and relief that this woman felt in that moment. She's healed completely. But her story doesn't stop here. It doesn't end here with her healing. Even though she's completely and instantly healed and the trajectory of her life has been changed, her healer does not let her slink back into the crowds. In verse 30, we're ushered into the mind of Jesus because he can tell that power has gone out of him and into this woman. He then asks, who touched my clothes? Jesus' disciples then decide, this is a great time to get sarcastic with Jesus. So they're like, what are you talking about? There's, you're around this massive crowd. Why are you asking who touched you? But he doesn't do it for the benefit of the disciples. He doesn't do it for the benefit of the crowd. He does it for the benefit of this woman. James Edwards puts it beautifully in his commentary on the book of Mark when he says that Jesus is not content to dispatch a miracle he wants to encounter a person. His question draws out the woman so that Jesus can extend even more grace to her. The woman comes to Jesus full of so much fear and awe over what has just happened that she's actually shaking. For the last 12 years of her life, she's been living in pain, shame, and as an outcast. And the first word 
that Jesus says to her is daughter. No other word could convey a greater sense of compassion, intimacy, and acceptance. And these three things, this woman had been lacking severely for the last 12 years. Jesus doesn't stop there either. He goes on and says that her faith has made her well, that she she can now go in peace and know that she's been fully healed. The Greek word that Mark uses here for, for to be made well has a connotation of both physical healing and spiritual healing. And that's going to be really important. We're going to come back to that later. This passage paints a clear and beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. He's simultaneously all-powerful and all-knowing, yet relational and tender. Jesus is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. In case you'd forgotten, poor desperate Jairus is anxiously waiting as Jesus is sidetracked by this woman. I'm sure that Jairus was thankful that she was healed. He witnessed this go down. But he needed a miracle of his own, right? So before Jesus can even turn around and resume his trip to the house of Jairus, news comes that his little girl is dead. In an instant, indescribable sadness washes over Jairus as his precious little girl has been stolen away from him by death. Immediately, though, Jesus turns to him and says, do not fear, only believe. Jesus had drawn out the woman for her good, but not for her good alone. His interaction with her demonstrated to Jairus that Jesus had the power to heal and the compassion to help the helpless. Jesus timed this powerful and tender miracle perfectly so that just as the woman had, Jairus too might place his faith in this miracle worker. We aren't told what Jairus' belief looked like, but he does consent and allow Jesus, Peter, James, and John to accompany him back to his house. They arrive at the house, and Jesus, um, <laughs> Jesus says some, and something really interesting again. He says, why are, why are you weeping and wailing? This little girl, she's just sleeping. She's not dead. And for the second time, <laughs> Jesus is ridiculed tonight 
by people who misunderstand him. But I don't think Jesus is making a medical diagnosis here. Again, Jesus is the all-knowing son of God, and I think he can tell the difference between a dead body and a living body. Rather, Jesus is declaring that death has no permanence when the creator of life is at hand. Jesus gives no time for the mocking crowd, but takes Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, and John into the room where the little girl's lifeless body was. Jesus gently takes her hand and says, Talitha, kumi. And to the astonishment of everyone in the room, she sits up and starts walking around. She comes back to life. And then Jesus sternly warns them not to tell anyone what's happened. Jesus is reserving this miracle for those who have faith in him. 2,000 years ago, in the Middle East, Jesus Christ healed a woman who'd been dealing with 12 years of an incredible illness. And then he brought back to life a 12-year-old girl who had died. This story sounds way too fantastic to be true, but it is. Jesus has authority over sickness and death, yet in his authority we find him to be tenderhearted and compassionate. But our story's still not done there's still another character. As you remember, every good story draws us in to the story itself. But this story is different. It doesn't just draw us in in our emotions, but it calls us to be active participants. Every person in this room has felt the sting of illness and death, at least to some degree. Illness and death don't discriminate The woman and Jairus could have hardly been more different. One had advantage and the other had nearly nothing. And so no no matter who you might identify more with, we all fall somewhere on that continuum in between the two. None of us are exempt from the effects of illness and death. This passage exhorts us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, who's able to heal sickness and who is able to conquer death. Don't misunderstand my point, though. Relief from sickness and the absence of physical death are not the ultimate gifts that Jesus extends to you and me. The quote here from David Garland, and I think he puts it really well. At the same time, however, one must also be sensitive to the reality that no matter how genuine or desperate the faith, all are not healed or saved from death. One must look beyond the moment of suffering to the eternal significance of Jesus' power. That power is related to the kingdom of God, which is present, but which is yet to be fully manifest. In the meantime, we will suffer from maladies and death. Our faith is in God's power to conquer death, not simply to restore things as they were. We can face the tragedies of everyday existence with confident faith that God is not through with us. Mark 5, our passage here tonight, seems to deal predominantly with the physical realm. But there are several allusions here to what lies behind this physical world. Jesus declares that this woman's faith has made her physically and spiritually well, and he demonstrates that death has no power over him. Both of these actions hint at spiritual realities that exist behind our story. 
as Jesus allows the unclean woman to touch him, and he reaches out and touches this unclean body of this dead little girl, he doesn't become unclean. Instead, he overcomes their uncleanliness. Physical uncleanliness demands physical restoration, while spiritual uncleanliness demands spiritual restoration. In and of ourselves, you and I are spiritually unclean because of our sin and rebellion against God's requirement to live perfectly clean lives. God requires perfect obedience to his law, which tells us to love him with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as much as we love ourselves. God demands sinless and perfectly clean lives from us. But if we're completely honest, there's no way that we could say that we ever measure up to that. But just 10 chapters later, in Mark 15, Jesus Christ willingly allows himself to be crucified on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus reached across time and culture and took on the spiritual uncleanliness of every person who places their faith in his perfect life, undeserved death, and resurrection. For those of you who've already placed your faith in Christ, this passage is a sweet reminder that your circumstances and the circumstances of your loved ones and friends and family who trust Christ as well, those things aren't ultimate. Our hope is not in this life or that it will be easy or painless. Our hope will one day be fully realized when Jesus Christ returns and unites us with God. Sarah and I have been very aware that we can't trust this life to give us ultimate hope or joy. When I was still a young boy, I lost two of my grandparents to cancer. When Sarah was still in high school, she lost her father to cancer. During the last year, Sarah and I have lost two children to miscarriage. And our sorrow and grief have been incredibly real and immense. But as we look through what it looks like to live in a broken world, we've been lovingly and graciously reminded by God that this isn't our ultimate hope. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, brings me some of the most joy that any passage in Scripture can. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is our ultimate hope as followers of Jesus Christ. This day is what we're looking forward to. This same hope is available for any person here tonight who has not yet placed their faith in the Jesus that we encounter in this story. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. 
Faith alone did not save the woman or Jairus, and faith doesn't save us. It is, however, the vehicle through which we can be saved. Our faith can waver and fluctuate. It's the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, that saves people from their sinful uncleanliness. Tonight, you can be cleansed from your shame and sin, but only by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died an undeserved death, and was raised back to life by God so that you could be forgiven. If you desire to be completely forgiven of your sins and have a relationship with God, you can pray along with me right now. There's a simple prayer behind me that I'll pray out loud, and if it describes the desire of your heart, feel free to pray along silently with me. Jesus, I need you to cleanse me of my shame and my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I give my life to you. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer just now, or if you have questions about what it means to pray a prayer like that, please indicate that on your blue cards. Our staff team would love to meet with you and talk with you. Or if you just have questions or want to talk about what I've shared tonight, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Feel free to come up. The good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ took upon himself our shame, suffering, sorrow, and sin, and bestows upon us acceptance, joy, hope, and spiritual life through faith in his substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus Christ has authority over sickness, death, and spiritual separation from God. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that these truths that we've meditated on tonight would be made real and clear, that we would trust your gospel and live in light of it every single day. Thank you for your word. And more importantly, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.